Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions you have about your meditation practice and your application of meditation practice in our tradition to your daily life. If you're new here, if you haven't ever practiced our meditation tradition or even learned about it, well, there's a link at the bottom of the page, at the bottom of the screen to provide you with information on our technique and tradition. So that's a good place to start. And for those of you who have questions, you can post them at any time in the chat. For the first 15 minutes, we'll take a pause and spend that time waiting for questions to come in. And as well, um, practicing mindfulness as a good sort of uh, preface, preparation for the Dharma session. So post your questions if you don't have questions, or once you've posted them, just spend the time in mindful walking or sitting, and I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions.
All right, 15 minutes after the hour. From here on, we will close the chat to anything besides questions. So if you have questions, post them in chat. Otherwise, just stay mindful, and we will begin answering starting now. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Could we say the Advaita Vedanta self-awareness practice falls under the mind or feeling foundations of Satipatthana when we note knowing, knowing, and would that be a valid Satipatthana practice on its own, ignoring all other foundations and experiences? No and no. No and no. I mean, with special emphasis on the fact that ignoring anything is absolutely not satipatthana, but anything to do with I am is definitely not satipatthana. And non-duality has no place in Buddhism. I often feel so tired and depressed, I can hardly move from bed or do anything productive. When lying in bed, I note rising and falling. Is there anything else I can do? Well, you should note tired and depressed. I hope you're noting those. You don't mention it, so I have to wonder whether you are. And they're a big part of the, the uh, they're a big part of the path. You know, they're a part of they're the the focus part of the thing you should be focusing on. So when you're tired, make sure you're noting that. When you're depressed, note depressed, and go deeper than that. Um, the problem with labels, I mean, besides the noting as a label, but the trouble with coming up with these labels like "I am" or "I feel," it's not that you're in, it's not that you're wrong. It's that they can become uh, conceptual, where rather than taking it as a, a note, uh, a acknowledgement of the experience, you take it as a label for yourself. "I am depressed," or "I oh, this is me feeling depressed." But what are you actually feeling? The point is, what is actually happening? Don't be, don't pre prejudge it as, oh, this is me feeling tired and depressed. Ask yourself what you actually experience in the present moment. So we focus on the stomach, for example, watching rising and falling as a means of keeping us present. And it allows you to see the stomach, which is a very valuable object. You'll see the three characteristics there, but it also lets you notice other things. So you might sometimes have a feeling that you label as depressed, but there might be, there will be much more, and it's quite complicated. There will be thoughts, there will be other kinds of feelings, wanting, liking, disliking, worry, fear, doubt, confusion, etc., etc. And all of those you should note. So read our booklet, you probably have, but make sure you're clear on what's in the booklet and clear on the sorts of things you should be noting that you know what the four foundations of mindfulness are and you're noting all uh, based on all four of them but when they're there you don't have to go looking for them but make sure you're not ignoring anything is drinking alcohol once a week bad for mindfulness and meditation and if so why well, once a week is kind of a red herring. I mean, is killing people once a week bad for mindfulness and meditation? Is stealing once a week bad for mindfulness and meditation? If it's bad, it's bad. It's better than killing a person every day of the week, or it's better than 
you know, and, and so it's better than drinking one every day of the week, of course. Uh, but why is drinking alcohol bad? It's antithetical to mindfulness. It's very hard to be mindful when you're drunk, when you're even having a little bit of alcohol, not just once a week, but even just one glass or even mild amounts of alcohol. I mean, of course, if it's very little, and you're suppose you're a very big person and physically, and and you take a little bit of alcohol, it's probably going to have a very small effect, but it certainly has an effect. And you're not talking about amounts, so I assume you're saying drinking enough to get intoxicated. Yeah, that's going to alter your state of mind. It's it's associated with delusion, so you're 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 quite likely to. Uh, to being inclined more towards the animal realms. The person who drinks, the more they drink alcohol, the more close they are aligned to the animal realm. They want to be reborn as a dog or a cat or a pig or a buffalo. That's the way to go. If you do that every week, well, that's a bad habit, and habits are the big deal because once something becomes habitual, it really changes you. Start changing your neural pathways in the brain even. I think that the noting often comes after the actual event. Is this not a problem? Everything comes after the event. During the event, you're too busy experiencing it. So technically, even um, the moment when you process what is it before you make the note, even that processing comes after the event, technically. The moment of the event, there has to be a, a bare experience, and that's that's very pure and simple. The problem is what normally comes after. What normally comes after is a judgment. This is good, this is bad, this is me, this is mine. Mindfulness aims to replace that. So it's, of course it's going to be right after, but it's a changing of what normally comes after. Everything created has a creator. Why not acknowledge a source for our existence? not as a vindictive, omniscient, omnipotent, eternal being with human-like temperament and defilements, but rather a benevolence. That's too long. Let's just go with the beginning. Um, everything created has a creator. That's false. That is, there's your problem. So we don't have to go further than that. And what you describe it as is... It's, it's it's indicative of the it's it's exemplary of the sort of people who ask these questions that it should be a long and complicated means of trying to to nuance your views, but it's wrong view. Um, well, let's go with the last part as well. We'll we'll add something about that, but let's first just talk about this. everything created as a creator is wrong. It's not true. It's a fallacious argument. I mean, it's a it's a it's a no fallacious premise. You know. You use this as a premise, and you say, "So, given that we all agree, and then you go on, and you're not the only, this isn't new. You're not this isn't whoever asked this isn't the person who came up with this. This is what um, theists use and deists and so on. They they use it as an argument, but it's um, they assume that we agree with it because, of course, a house has a builder, right? But um, the problem is that these people don't, don't people who use this premise don't have an understanding of reality, let alone Buddhism. Uh, there's no house. House is just a concept. You know who's the creator? Our minds. Our minds create the house. You look at this thing and say, oh, that's a house. Not a house. 
In what way is it a house? Look, tell me where the house is. Is it in the door or the wall or the window? Where's the house? Can you find the house? There's a famous um, argument in the beginning of the Melinda Panha. Some, as soon as I start talking, some of you should recognize, oh yes, he's talking about the simile of the cart. The house or the cart. So, this cart, is. where's the cart? Is it in the axle or the wheel? Where do you find this cart? So you don't create anything. Nothing is ever created. And your premise is invalid. That's the problem. And by, by assuming that we all agree that everything created has a creator, there's no such thing as anything created. In Buddhism, things are formed, in, in meaning that they're affected by other things. So, formed is probably not the right word. Sankara means something like um, conditioned, is how we usually translate it. But it means it's affected by other things, or come into being based on uh, causes and conditions. But it's mo- things are mo- those things are momentary, are experiences. The truth of reality is experiences. So Buddhism doesn't acknowledge anything being created. Nothing is ever created. You could say you created a house. You haven't created anything. You've just turned the tree into wood and the wood into something. I mean, the, the wood is still there. And what's in the wood? Atoms. And what's in the atoms? Particles. What's in the, what's in the particles? We don't even know. Scientists don't even know. What is it all made of? Quarks? Quantum field? And we're still, they're still not sure. Even about, And that's just the physical don't get don't get started on what the mental is. So where's the created? There's nothing created. And so the idea of a creator. I mean, the, the normal argument against this is, well, what about the creator? Who created the creator if everything is created? Ah, because then you say everything created, and you say, okay, well, the creator is uncreated. It's just such a clever, eh, just sophism. It's not real. So I can't take your question seriously because you've uh, assumed something that we vehemently disagree with and that is not only that everything created as a creator but that things can be created in the first place uh, so let's go to the last part because this is uh, this hints at a argument for theism that is doesn't matter whether something is true or not what about an attitude of reverence and awe um, are they greater inspiration yeah, the attitude isn't the problem, it's the views behind it. If you have a reverence and awe towards the Buddha as a teacher, I mean, that's great. But you're glossing over the fact that what you're talking about is having reverence and awe towards an um, uh, um, imaginary being that couldn't possibly exist. So, yeah, that's that's pretty bad. It's not the awe or reverence. It's the object of your reverence and awe, which is going to not create inspiration. It's going to lead you on the wrong path. Why would it lead towards enlightenment? It's just going to lead towards delusion and ignorance. So, sorry to be a downer, but uh, nope, not going to buy it. How can previous practice of attending to the breath sensations in my nostrils be incorporated into the noting practice, particularly when the mind tends to remain focused on the breath sensations? Just note feeling, feeling, and then go back to the stomach. If it goes back to the nose, then just say feeling, feeling again. You're, you're seeing non-self. You're not in control. It's just pretty simple, right? The habit, your mind is habitually inclined to focus on the nose. Just note it as feeling, feeling, and then go back to the stomach. It just takes a bit of time because, of course, you were doing a different practice previously. 
that's fine. I mean, you don't have to worry. Well, is that, should I just stick with my old practice or something? I mean, that's not a real reason to stick to an old practice. I'm not saying you shouldn't. If you think the old practice was better, that's totally different. But don't worry about this. I mean, this is actually quite valuable. It's a valuable lesson, generally speaking. Noticing how the mind just doesn't listen, you know. Going to the, and then you can see why it doesn't listen. Well, maybe I'm doubting this. You know, there's some kind of doubt. Maybe the nose is better. Or maybe there's liking of the focus on the nose, liking. So then you have to note those things. As well. I mean, it's a very good and valuable experience. Don't think of it as a, of it as a problem. It's a value, valuable experience to see how the mind behaves in such situations. I have a scar on my body that makes me feel ugly and disgusting and experience anxiety and irritation as well. It's even interfering with my work. Is the solution just to note it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's no reason why the scar... The, see, the scar on your body doesn't make you feel ugly and disgusting. That's on you. You're reacting. It's nothing to do with the scar, not directly. Scars don't have that power, right? It's just, a, just uh, it's actually not even a physical thing. It's, it's not even a bodily thing. It's a seeing. It's a seeing thing. Well, it can also be a feeling thing, like, you know, you think of it, and you think of the fact that you're scarred, and you think of yourself as being scarred, and so on. I mean, all of these things are very valuable. I mean, very valuable uh, experience. Very, um, like a classroom, you know, very um, profitable opportunity to learn about attachment and reaction and uh, sorts of things. So even in interfering with my work, yeah, I mean, that's why why it's so valuable, is that look, coming to terms with these things and these things and seeing how they're causing you stress and suffering, how useless and pointless and unbeneficial they are, really experiencing that and seeing it head on. It could be it's very valuable because it'll remove this interference from just living your life, not just your work, right? So make sure you're noting the anxiety, the irritation, the disgust. Um yeah. And try and note the experience of seeing the body, the scar or thinking about it or so on, so that you get a better relationship with it. You have to also deal with um a sense of self-worth because that's different i mean that's it wouldn't be a problem if you were con weren't concerned about self-worth you know like i want to be beautiful or handsome or whatever and the scar is getting in the way of that so it's not the scar's problem it's your desire to be handsome or beautiful right that's an extra thing that you have to come to terms with you have to note the wanting or the fear or the worry the sadness that you're not beautiful or handsome or so What do you recommend for one who came from an occult or esoteric path that taught meditation differently than in Buddhism? How does one get a correct view of meditation? Through right meditation. Uh, you know, again, it's like the person who's talking about the nostrils. You just take it as an object of mindfulness, and it doesn't mean you're just going to be able to turn it off. No, you take it as an object. Take your habits, your mind going back to all these habits. Take them as objects of mindfulness. So if you practice satipatthana according to the, the this tradition, there's there's no problem, there's no challenge. Um, the biggest challenge is 
seeing it not as a challenge, like not seeing it as, oh, these things are getting in the way, this this old way is getting in the way of the new way or something like that, or I'm not sure which way is right or so. The biggest challenge is looking at it instead as, oh, these are just experiences. and I know what they're based on, doesn't really matter. What matters is their coming and going and understanding their nature as impermanent suffering and non-self. How do you meditate and not get bored? I get bored after a couple of minutes of sitting. You don't not you don't not get bored. You just note the boredom, right? It's great that you're you're getting bored. Why is it great? Because that means not that the meditation is boring. That means you have a habit of getting bored at things like meditation. And there's lots of things that are similar. So there's probably many things in your life that make you bored. And so if you can learn to face, confront, and cleanse the boredom just by facing it down, being patient with it, and learning to see that it's not actually the thing that's boring or that's the problem, it's not the boring thing that's the problem, it's my reaction that's really a problem because it it creates suffering. Uh, once you see that, then uh, you're less inclined to get bored. And that helps you in your life because, again, many instances where you would have gotten bored that you can now be patient and at peace. At peace is really the most important thing. Boredom is lack of peace. Some people sit on a mountain and are very peaceful. Some people sit on a mountain and get bored. It's not the mountain's fault. With the use of certain mind-altering substances, such as cannabis, can it still be possible to observe consciousness and an individual's experience with good intentions? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know why you would think, well, I, I get people do think this, but it doesn't seem right that anyone should it doesn't seem right the thought that somehow it would be valuable um and i've talked about this before the only thing that you could theoretically think that some of these things like psilocybin or so on are valuable is to open your broaden your perspective on on what is possible and on the tenuous relationship between the mind and reality on the conventional nature of what we think of as a rigid and fixed reality and so on but those are such, I mean, they're such um, trivial observations. People think of this as very profound, like if you have these DMT, all mind-altering or you know, experiences. I think it's DMT, is that right? Or I don't know, all the ayahuasca or whatever. I think, wow, I had this mind, this great thing and it opened up my mind. Yeah, maybe. And like they talk about psilocybin as helpful for overcoming addiction. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I'm not highly, highly against these things, but... It's so far removed from mindfulness practice and from wisdom. I think the real problem is people aren't capable of practicing mindfulness. They're just too far gone. And and uh, so we're just relying on lazy fixes. And that's a huge part of the problem is that you're trying to use these things to fix things. And that attitude 
is problematic when you think that these things are valuable and so you do them that's the, the that's not the biggest problem but that's a big part of the problem it's uh and you reinforcing it by actually doing them and by altering your mind and by getting stoned you know because cannabis isn't valuable it just makes you stoned and uh, think you're very profound and special but you're not really you're just silly and stoned I mean, I've done all these. I've done some of these things. I haven't done like acid or anything or DMT, but there's nothing profound. I mean, they're just lazy, you know? You want you want a lazy way to get to enlightenment. That was the most profound thing I realized from, from psilocybin was that it wasn't real. It wasn't real. It was artificial. And the only way to really become enlightened, or whatever I would have used, the words I would have used back then, was to do it without psilocybin. That was the best thing I got from it, to realize that it wasn't the way. Should I note an unpleasant situation as unpleasant, or the feelings that arise from them, such as anger, etc., is it best to note whichever is more prominent? So they're not. We don't call them. Well, yeah, I guess feelings is fine. We in English we have we have so few words. Um, yeah, no, things are not unpleasant per se, and that's so that's not a good one to use because you're putting it on the experience. You're blaming the experience for being unpleasant, right? And it's not. That's not true. I mean, it's it's not terrible, but it's not the greatest because yeah, it's not really true. Much better to focus on how you feel, displeased, right? Why do we say something's unpleasant? Because we're displeased, which is anger. So you can note displeased, disliking is the common one. But yeah, don't note unpleasant. It's not a great note. But you can note pain, for example. That's a good one. Uh, but yeah, note how you feel about it is much more important. Is Nibbana about destroying the rising and falling of different karmic concepts in both the mental and physical aspects of human beings? Nibbana is cessation of suffering. So I think you're conflating it with something else. The path to Nibbana is seeing clearly impermanent suffering and non-self, put very simply. In the Maha Satipatthana Sutta, it defines right samadhi as the four jhanas. What place does this have in the Mahasi noting practice? Doesn't, though defines the four jhanas as right samadhi, and that's an important distinction. This is what people say, it defines right samadhi as the four jhanas, but it doesn't. It says the four jhanas are right samadhi. I mean, that may sound like splitting hairs, but it's a common problem that people have in, Buddhism, in, well, in things like Buddhism, that they may try to make things say things that they don't say, and this is important because people use this statement that you have as a, as a dogmatic sticking point where they say the Mahasi technique, for example, is therefore invalid without any 
a real uh, practical experience to to support it. I mean, maybe they tried it and it didn't work for them. I don't know, but uh, considering how it does work, it's not a very uh, reassuring argument. So uh, that's the problem with words, you know. People can use words to create logic that goes even against reality, against truth. But... Um, I mean, why the Buddha didn't elaborate or say among other things or something like that is because basically, yeah, basically the four jhanas are, are pretty much everything to do with right samadhi, but he didn't say nothing but the four jhanas or the only thing that is right samadhi is the four jhanas. He says, what is right samadhi? Well, the four jhanas are right samadhi. But he does that with many different things where he says this thing is this, and then somewhere else he says that thing is also this. So. You'd have the same problem if you tried to do it in many examples where the Buddha says, what is X? Y. You say, ah, well then, nothing but Y is X. And then somewhere else he says, what is X? Z is X. Oh, wait, I was wrong. No? You, you see the problem? But uh, in Mahasi, the explanation is, it's dogmatic. When you talk about the four jhanas, it's, it's dogmatic to say that's um, right samadhi. But, there is a way that you can understand this as actually true. And that's because right samadhi there is referring to the Eightfold Noble Path, right? In the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, there's a section on the Four Noble Truths, and one of the sections is the um, truth of the path to freedom from suffering, which is the Eightfold Noble Path. Now, the Eightfold Noble Path arises at one moment. And you know what the object of that mo that mind moment is one moment that's the only time the eightfold noble path arises in that one moment the object is nibbana so yes in that moment there is absolutely something that would be termed a jhana it's called a lokutara jhana super mundane jhana or or meditation because literally jhana just means meditation but it's used in a particular the word jhana is used in a specific sense sense in buddhism so we use the word jhana not just to talk about meditation in general, but a sort of a trance or absorption. And in that moment, yeah, there's absolute absorption, but it's only technically absorption. What do you mean absorption? Because there's no arising, it's, it's cessation, right? So in that moment, one moment, because the next moment also isn't the Eightfold Noble Path per se. I mean, actually, that's just technical. It's, it's basically the same, but it's called palanyana. It's fruition rather than the path. And that moment can arise a maximum of four times at each of the four paths. The path to Sotapanna, the path to Sakitagami, the path to Anagami, and the path to Arhan. It can only arise those four times. But when someone is in that state, whether it's path or fruition, yes, it's a jhana, but it's lokutra jhana. If you're talking about the preliminary path, which the Satipatthana is mostly referring to, not in that section, but for the most part is talking about the Pubangamaga, the preliminary path, then um, you certainly don't need anything exactly like the jhanas. Uh, I mean, you have to be noting the hindrances. It says to note, to observe when the hindrances see how they arise and how they cease. So it's not all about the jhanas. It's about cultivating samadhi absolutely but the jhanas only need to arise at the moment of cessation and then they are lokutra jhana they're a different kind of jhana it's just technical
I lose my mindfulness with certain foods. Should I avoid those foods so long as I like them, or is this considered control? No, that's not a big deal. I mean, no, no, you really shouldn't. You should just learn to be mindful of them. You, you, you lose your mindfulness, well, you've got a challenge ahead of you. Because liking is a good object, good to learn about your liking. So you shouldn't avoid them, but uh, you might want to stop seeking them out specifically because it's also very valuable to have as foods that you don't like. It's a real hardship when people go to, when, for monks and even for people who go to stay at meditation centers for extended stays. We, we, realize, we didn't realize how attached we were to food. When you think you're attached to food now, wait until you can't have them for a month or something, right? It's a big challenge. I have fear towards impermanence in meditation. Do you have advice for this? Yeah, just note the fear. Like any fear, there's nothing special about that specific type of fear. Don't don't focus too much on what you're afraid of. Fear is stressful, it's harmful, it's a negative thing, so there's never any good reason to have fear. You should note afraid, afraid. Make keep it simple. I feel intense subconscious hatred and resentment towards my father because of the way he was ignorant and the way he treated me as I was growing up and even now the way he treats me. Any tips on overcoming this and similarly deeply ingrained childhood issues? And don't try to overcome them, just try to face them and be resigned to the fact that they're deeply ingrained and you're not going to quickly get rid of them. That's not the point. The point is to see how they're out of your control, to see how everything's kind of out of your control, and control is kind of an illusion. And not just an illusion, but it's a harmful illusion. It's a, it's a path to stress. So rather than stressing out but trying to control and fix and overcome, just try to learn and try to see and try to understand. That really changes your outlook and uh, it frees you from resentment, right? Because Resentment is kind of like uh, thinking that he should have been able to control himself and uh, you're trying to uh, change him and so on. Or, you know, uh, and it's related to self, like he was, uh, he treated me, you yeah. know. That's just self, that's just ego. It's all in the past. But, you know, you don't have to tell yourself that. You just have to observe and you'll see. You'll lose any attachment to this. It doesn't mean it doesn't mean trivializing or brushing off evil deeds that people have done, even towards you or anyone. It's about seeing, yeah, that's evil, and that's that's what it was. But to to drop it there, not to dismiss it as not bad or not evil. Just about stop stop torturing yourself over anything. You know, stop torturing yourself. Period. Suffering. It's about freedom from suffering.
I often meditate while I walk to work every day. Is there anything wrong with walking meditation at a brisk pace? If so, does noting the lifting, placing of the feet remain the same? I mean, it can. It probably shouldn't because, um, well, I mean, you wouldn't want to note slowly because you'd have a, you'd be late for work. Um, but it's great that you're doing it. It's absolutely great. It's all, it's wonderful to hear. I really appreciate hearing these sorts of things. It's could you imagine like if everyone were doing this when they walk to work? What an awesome person you are for doing that. What awesome people you all are, every one of you. Um, but. A, it doesn't, you can't use it to substitute formal meditation and then tell me every week that you've done so much when you were just walking to work. And B, um, yeah, you probably don't want to do it slow uh, or methodical like, like we do the formal walking meditation. I mean, just because you'd be late for work, people would look at you. I mean, if you could, if you were a monk, you certainly could do it walked up for alms round. You probably wouldn't get much food. You'd be too late. In social aspects, I seem to have a pretty oh, bad... Oh, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. I didn't... Sorry, I'm sorry, Chris. Um, mm. Just just to be clear, what I didn't quite say is like, no formal meditation has to be done at a slow pace, according to... You know, you can watch the videos I have on it, but absolutely not. You can't... So that was the first thing, but I didn't make it clear why, because absolutely, if it's br a brisk pace, you're no longer doing walking meditation. I mean, you, you can no longer count that as formal walking meditation. Great that you're doing it. Just no, absolutely not the same as formal walking meditation. In social aspects, I seem to have pretty bad tendencies and bad karma stored from the childhood. Not only does it create much external worldly problems for me, but on top of it, I create additional worry, anxiety, and all sorts of bad karma, which also hinders meditation later. Any tips on effectively managing all this? Well, the one thing, I mean, it's pretty, you can read our booklet. It's got uh, teachings on how to, how to face and, and confront and become more familiar with these things. But bad karma is never stored from childhood. You're just talking about habits. Um, so you have to be very, very vigilant about dismissing such views that I have, I have things, I have bad karma stored from childhood. I mean, it's kind of nitpicking because you're just using words and that's not a big deal, but just be careful that you're not reifying these things, turning them into boogeymen or burdens of big, big backpack full of rocks that you're carrying around on your back. There's no such thing. It's just who you are now is is caused by habits in the past. So uh, that's the first thing. Let's go sentence by sentence here. Not only does it create much externally worldly problems. Yeah, okay. Um, that's very fair. And just like the other person who said that, um, that's a good reason to practice meditation so that you can free yourself from worldly problems. I create additional worry, anxiety, and also, yeah, just don't blame these things on those other things, right? They should all just, they're, they're all just further bad habits, so just don't worry, worry. Try and take them as face value, worry, anxious, anxious. 
um, yeah, because that's the thing, is it will lead you to create all sorts of bad karma. But about bad karma, I wouldn't obsess too much about it. Some, because Why? Because some people, they see everything as bad karma, and it's kind of true, you know, we're, we're constantly, every moment, potentially making bad com- karma. Every moment that we're not mindful is bad karma, but that just, all that really means is that we're creating further bad habits, and uh, we're corrupting our mind, polluting our mind constantly. So don't be too obsessed with that. Just do some practice, try and be mindful, and that will start to change your habits. Um, Yeah, so I guess managing is probably not the best uh, word to use. It's not really so much about managing. You just have to uh, whittle away. It's like you're trying to cut down the biggest tree in the forest with a very small knife. You can't cut it down in one fell swoop. You have to slowly, slowly chip away at it. If enlightened beings do not wish for rebirth, is it for rebirth in the lower realms, or no rebirth at all? If no rebirth at all, how does that relate to dependent origination? That's a weird question. Um, I'm not really being critical, it's just odd. Uh, so, okay, blind beings don't wish for anything. That's the point. Not rebirth here, not rebirth there, not not being reborn. They don't wish for either or. Why? Because they have no desire. That's the whole point. They're they're free. They're independent. They have no need for anything. No, they don't want for anything. They don't need for anything. They're they're completely free. That's the definition of, or it's part of the definition of enlightenment, or one way of defining enlightenment. No rebirth at all. How does that relate to dependent origination? I'm not sure where you're going with this, but if I take this question at face value, how does it relate to dependent origination? It means that at the moment of Vedana, because there's no ignorance, then there is no uh, tanha. So in, in dependent origination, at the moment of feeling, there doesn't arise craving. Because there doesn't arise craving, there doesn't arise clinging because there doesn't arise clinging there doesn't arise becoming because there's no bhava there's no jati because of no jati there's no because um, or or to put it another way because of no ignorance there's no formations no karma and because there's no karma there's no vinyana which means there's no rebirth vinyana because there's no rebirth vinyana I mean, yada, 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 eva metasa kevalasa dukkha kandasa nirodo hoti. Thus the whole uh, mass of suffering, this is the, the, the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. Doesn't Arahantship make you end the nama and rupa of things, such as rising and falling, which is kama? Isn't that arahantship? That's why it is impossible for an arahant to suffer, because things doesn't arise. No, no, no. You misunderstood what arahantship is. Arahantship is freedom from ignorance, first and foremost. That's about it. Um, right? Ignorance? Hmm, I wonder if that's even right. I mean, yeah, ignorance in the sense that we mean it. The, point, the problem with saying that is that there are certain things that an arahant is ignorant about, but yeah... 
So, and Arahant, Arahant might not know what the capital of Zimbabwe is, but they're ignorant of that, right? But it's not ignorance as we mean it. An Arahant is free from ignorance about the Four Noble Truths. And another way of putting it is they're free from defilements. No greed, no anger, no delusion. Doesn't mean the end of Nama and Rupa, rising and falling. It means the end of Kamma, but Kamma is not a rising and falling. Rising and falling is not Kamma. Kamma is, is uh, ethical volition, which is based on desire. And that's why it's impossible for an arahant to suffer, not because things don't arise, but because they have no desire, no clinging, no craving, no delusion. Are there things like demonic possession in Buddhism? I have started experiencing a lot of extreme phenomena after one meditation retreat last year. Do Buddhists do exorcisms? There is apparently, um, but I wouldn't, I bet it's not the sort of thing that comes regularly. It's more like a one-off thing. I can't imagine a demon hanging around and possessing someone repeatedly, the same person. It's much more likely that, although, you know, if you look up, um, look up William James, William James, I think is the name. I've never really looked into it, but apparently he did lots of Lots of studies, like it's, this was over a hundred years ago, I think, back before a lot of modern science, modern medicine existed. But uh, I did some interesting experiments with people who apparently did have multiple beings, like multiple consciousnesses living in the same body. So uh, I think it's possible. Um, do Buddhists do exorcisms? I mean, culturally, Thai Buddhists do, Burmese Buddhists do. You get what I'm saying? Like, it's more of a cultural thing than a Buddhist thing. Um, but let me think here. I mean, is there a technical Buddhist exorcism? You know, because there's funny rules in the Vinaya about, about demon possession. If, uh, like, monks aren't allowed to drink blood or raw meat no, is it blood or I don't know raw flesh I think is the one but if you're possessed by a demon yeah this is what it says if you're possessed by a demon then uh, you don't break it's not breaking a rule if you end up eating raw flesh I'm not telling you to it's not like go ahead and eat raw flesh that's a terrible thing to do but um, demon might force you to do it might make someone do it. And and the point is you, you would make an exception. And why I bring it up is because apparently it, it happened. So, uh, you know, not to freak you out, which is all I've probably managed to do with this answer. But let's get around to something valuable and let's say that it's still, it's a good example of things that don't seem like it, but actually are still experiences. They are still ordinary experiences. And whatever you're experiencing no matter whether you're possessed by a demon or whether, let's say, it's true that you're just imagining it. And I'm not suggesting that. I'm not trying to trivialize or dismiss what you're saying. Um, but extreme phenomena are still ordinary phenomena. Why? They're still seeing, they're still hearing, they're still smelling, they're still tasting, they're still feeling, they're still thinking. That's all they are. That's all it's possible that they are. 
And the problem is not what they are. The problem is when you make out to them out to be more than that. So when you start thinking about demon possession, you've lost the train. You've lost the... What's the expression? You've lost the... Yeah, there's, a, there's a funny saying about that. You've lost the thread. You've uh, skipped the track. You've jumped the shark. Isn't that a saying? <laughs> I don't know. You've... You've done. You've you've lost the thread. Uh, you've 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 lost it. You've you've gone outside of. In Buddhism, the the Buddha saying was, "You've gone outside your uh, pasture. You want you want to be safe. Stay inside your pastures. And what is the what is your pasture? Your pasture is the four foundations of mindfulness. So stick to the four satipatthana, and you can't go wrong." Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour and asked all the questions we're prepared to ask today. All right. Thank you all for your question. Great questions. Sorry. Uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like I think they're great questions. I don't mind. None of these were. I don't mind any of them, even if I'm critical of them. Trying to be critical to help. So I hope uh, it's helpful. I don't want to chase anyone away or make anyone feel upset or dismissed or anything. you know you're welcome to yell at me if you think that was the case uh, but appreciate everyone and thank you chris and uh, lost the plot i think i've heard that too that's probably what i was looking for uh thanks sabitsu uh jim edit is here i think maybe maybe not have a good week everyone peace happiness freedom from suffering to all Sad. Sad.